0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage.
2: When you think about all the stuff in your kitchen, there's at least one thing in there with a story behind it, right? Right. Like that rolling pin your aunt used as a foam roller.
3: She would use the rolling pin like over, you know, the the belly and the outside of the thighs.
2: Or that cookbook that got caught between your cabinets.
3: I even look up and I know that space and I'm like, there it is. So
0: she's like always with me in the kitchen, even though I can't physically put my hands on that book.
2: Or that KitchenAid you walked a mile with in heels.
4: I often tell people it's one of the hardest-fought objects that I own.
2: (laughs) Or that knife you stole or got on loan from an airline. I have the fork and spoon, too. I mean, I couldn't just take one. Or that fork you stole because it was so cool-looking, but now it just haunts your conscience, and now you don't use it anymore. Okay, that one was mine. I'm Kyone Wolf, and you'll hear stories behind beloved kitchen objects on the next Audacious. from Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. This is audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. In my kitchen, for a long time on a shelf, there sat one of those old-fashioned hand-crank coffee grinders. But I never, not once, used it to grind coffee. In fact, as soon as I acquired it, I promptly stopped engaging with it completely. See, when my grandma died in 2007, the family went to clean out her house and There really was no rhyme or reason or much contention, really, about who took what stuff. But this coffee grinder, I remember feeling like it was sacred. I remember every time we would visit growing up, I would play with this thing. And so I wanted it. So I took it. And I didn't tell anybody. And then in the middle of all the cleaning and claiming, and there was also a lot of Jamesons because we're Irish and, well... Grandma's dead. When my cousin asked, where's the coffee grinder? And I didn't say a damn thing. And as soon as I didn't say a damn thing, it was tainted. I'd now acquired it by omission, and there was no going back. So just last year, after 14 years of avoiding eye contact with this thing, I gave it to my brother Paul to take back with him to Madrid, Spain, where its family legacy is now turned away from one of personal shame to, well, they use it sometimes, so that's not nothing. So I've lied, and I've also stolen, but we'll get to that a little later. Today you're going to hear stories about the history of kitchen gadgets in people's lives. I'm talking utensils, KitchenAid mixers, veggie peelers, and even a Danish posa press. There are a lot of stories in this one, so brace yourself with a potato masher or something, because we're going to move fast. Susan Jane Bigelow of Enfield, Connecticut is going to get us started.
1: This is my spoon. It's a a very normal looking spoon. It is is my favorite spoon. And it's the spoon that I always have to use like when I'm having ice cream or anything like that. If I don't have my spoon, I get sad. And my spouse, Tasha, will tell you that if I don't get my spoon when I have something that I need to use a spoon for, it's sad because I sort of bonded with the thing. This spoon came to me uh, because I found it on the side of the road one day.
2: No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Were you driving? Were you walking, running, cartwheeling?
1: I walked a lot when I was in college uh, because I didn't want to go like back to the dorm and hang out with my awful roommates. So I just go walk everywhere. And I found all kinds of stuff on the side of the road. You know, I found like a cigarette habit on the side of the road one time. I found a box of cigarettes and smoked them all because I was I was young and dumb. Um, I found a license plate that I kept. I I found all kinds of stuff. And I found one day my spoon.
2: But what's it about the spoon? Because there are plenty of spoons in the streets, I guess. And there was something about this one. What was it?
1: (laughs) It was there right then. Um, That's about as much as I could tell you that I felt like picking up a spoon right then. And so I grabbed the spoon and it's mine. And it's been with me for the past 20 something years. Uh, it's got like little chips on it because I put it through the disposal, the garbage disposal in the in the sink a couple of times because I didn't I somehow gets stuck in there. And so it's got it's got some marks on it. So when the spoon was in the garbage disposal, did you I mean, how did
2: that feel? I imagine this is a beloved object and here it is like experiencing the worst possible thing you could think of, really, for a spoon or a body part or anything.
1: It's like my heart was being torn out by thousands of rotating knives (laughs) which is what the thing is and you know once like when I got it out of there and it was still it was still like a bunch like a bunch of nicks on it it felt bad and you know now when I eat with it sometimes it's got a little bit of a an edge to it
2: (laughs) (laughs) and then you get a nice metallic taste with the blood in your mouth exactly you know so you can factor it into the recipe
1: Really, the spoon is even more special now. (laughs) There is no spoon like this now in the world. Just like you. Exactly. It's a unique snowflake. That's what it is.
2: (laughs) Well, I wonder what you would like to see happen to the spoon after your time on this planet Earth as a snowflake has ended.
1: Honestly, I hope that it finds its way back to the road and it sits there waiting for some other dumb college kid to come pick it up and carry on the legacy. That'll be my legacy in this world. It's my shot at immortality.
2: Well, Susan Jane Bigelow, thank you for telling me your story.
1: You're very welcome.
2: I now bring you, with pride, two old friends of mine, Emily and Kevin Tracy of Windsor, Connecticut.
5: You know how sometimes... When you go on a flight or you stay in a hotel and you're like, that's a cool glass and you put it in your luggage and you take it home. I may have done that with a small knife that I had gotten on a flight to Israel. I went to Israel in 2005 and I couldn't believe that they gave me an actual real serrated Knife, Be it a mini knife, but it was post 9-11 and they were so confident in their security that they gave me a real, I have the fork and spoon too. I mean, I couldn't just take one, right? They'd be sad if they weren't all together. The the inventory wouldn't make sense. It really wouldn't. (laughs) I don't even drink cappuccino but I took the tiny little cappuccino spoon and now Marlo likes to eat her ice
2: cream with it. Your daughter yeah.
5: Because it takes longer with the tiny tiny spoon.
2: <laughs> Do you know I've thought of that myself when I've enjoyed perhaps a, a bowl of mint chocolate chip ice cream with maraschino cherry juice on it and a maraschino cherry on top and then it, if it's white Briar's ice cream it turns it pink. Ooh. Anyway I think about using a spoon a small spoon because the smaller the spoon the longer it'll take for me to eat it. So Marlo is a genius, obviously, obviously. Uh, because we share this um <laughs> this really way of living, I think, right of savoring that which is delicious and joyful in the tiniest of ways in the tiny little hands, tiny bubbles.
1: Oh, Make
2: me feel fine. A, oh, you know. Can we go back to the um, the peanut butter knife? The peanut butter knife. Um, I stole... I should probably come clean. I stole <laughs> a fork from a restaurant, an unnamed restaurant in the state of Connecticut. Um, the reason I stole it was... It was the heaviest fork I've ever held. And it was angular, uh, like my jawline.
5: Oh, nice.
2: Yeah, it just looked like me in fork form. <laughs> and I stole it. And here's the problem, is that now every time I see it, first of all, it's a little too heavy to use on a regular basis. <laughs> it's, just, it's a little too much.
6: I don't, know, I don't need
2: to be weightlifting with my fingers as I'm trying to enjoy some, you know, no. mac and cheese. But the thing about it really is that I every time I see it I think oh, I stole it. And I I don't like that. I don't like the bad vibes that come with stealing something like at the end of the day. Like, ah, oh, it's just it's tainted. But I can't oh, I can't get rid of it. You can't kick it. I can't I can't kick it. I just can't kick it. I just <laughs> so I mean, you've clearly found a way to live with Yourself having stolen this cutlery. And I guess I could use some advice about how to overcome my own guilt. Like, do I just, do I start using it and embrace it or do I let it go? What do you, what's your advice?
5: No, you got to just keep using it. And oddly enough, this is reminding me of yet another piece of cutlery that I borrowed from Israel. My God, they're going to come after me.
2: I think they have better things to do, but you know. And this is actually, there were two of them,
5: two of the same. They were sporks, metal sporks. And the kids love them because they're perfect for kids. And they're like extra long (laughs) handles. So like (laughs) it gives the mac and cheese time to cool off by the time it gets (laughs) to their mouth. So um, I guess you just got to keep using it and then give it to your guests. That's what you can do.
2: Oh, so they can get their vibes all over it? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks.
5: Yeah. I mean, you just have to
2: embrace it. It was part of your life at that point, right?
5: You can celebrate it. Yeah.
2: So instead of avoiding it or ruminating over it and what, you know, it did to me or I did to it and what uncertain future we share in this chaotic, swirling existence that is uh, both invigorating and full of despair, I can... Look to that fork and say, I see you. I see you. And I'm here for you. And you deserve better. You deserve to be touched.
5: Exactly. Embrace it. Mm-hmm.
2: Emily and Kevin Tracy, thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love you. Bye.
7: Bye.
3: With a feeling that I'm gonna love you, gonna love you Til the end, till the end of
8: time
2: Now, Joy Braddock from West Hartford is kind of famous for her love for her spatula. Seriously, she regularly features it on her Instagram so much that she's kind of known for it. I asked her what she was thinking when she started showing off this beloved spatula on the Instas.
8: Who's
7: going to care about this is such a cheesy thing to talk about. But then I just kind of had fun kind of making it into a character a little bit within the story. Just kind of going overboard because I thought if, if I'm like this spatula is, you know, buy it on this website and it's wonderful.
2: Wait a minute. Do you know Spatula City from UHF? The movie UHF? No. I. You don't know Spatula City? No. You're about to.
0: Honey, where's the spatula?
9: Okay, kids, let's go. There's just one place to go for all your spatula needs. Spatula City.
3: And what better way to say I love you than with a gift of a spatula? Spatula City! Spatula City, seven locations. We're in the yellow pages under Spatulas. My, where did you get that lovely spatula? Spatula City, we sell spatulas.
2: Is there a dish in which
7: the spatula really shines? I love to use it for stir fry, Mm. actually because i use a wok and there's like an art to how you toss i don't know it just makes you feel like a real <laughs> chef <laughs> like the spatula just it it follows the curve of the wok you know so you really like scrape off all that ginger that's sizzling on the side of the wok and oh that's satisfying it yeah. just gets it all in so yeah i love that it's like my number one go to for it, for everything and now so now i have two of these spatulas which is interesting. So my husband, Ben saw how much I love the spatula. I don't know. Maybe he saw how much I put it in my feed, but he's not on social media, (laughs) but he got me another one. This, the first one that we owned from his aunt has this red sort of plastic handle and this one has a lovely wooden handle But then I feel conflicted when I go to use the spatulas because I don't know which one to pick. I don't want to favor
2: one over the other. (laughs) Maybe if you just let them alone for a little while and give them some privacy, you'll have little baby spatulas someday. (laughs) Although Mm. adopt, don't shop. Mm. Not sure. Anyway. (laughs) Mm -mm. Uh, All right. Well, uh, a, a question that, you know, it was admittedly uncomfortable to ask, but I've got to ask it is what would you like to see happen to the spatula when you die?
7: Oh, I really, I truly hope it gets carried on through the first through my daughter, then to her. Like I would love to see it just last as long as it can. And she has her own rubber spatula. So maybe the love is developing. I, I can nurture this. <laughs> and then she'll
2: have her own spatula to give to her any children in her life. Yes, yes. And on and on and on, we just scrape on by. Well, Joy Braddock, thank you for talking with me. And congratulations on your spatula.
10: Thank you. Thank you, Kion.
11: When we get back. It was entertainment. Oh. And I thought, yeah, I have a peeler at home, but it is kind of the the cruddy one that he's comparing his to.
4: I saw this KitchenAid mixer and I impulsively decided to buy it that day, not thinking I had to carry it and then walk a mile to my house.
2: We've got so many more stories behind kitchen objects. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me.
3: I, think I had a lot of nice flapjacks there. Support for this podcast
1: comes from Hartford HealthCare.
3: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach.
1: Only about
9: 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing.
3: Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure.
4: Patients with moderate to
9: severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP.
3: To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
2: This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, the whole episode is full of little stories behind the stuff in people's kitchens. Let's jump back in with Deborah Walsh from West Hartford, Connecticut,
3: with a rolling pin that's gotten around aunt jackie was the matriarch of the family my mother was the youngest of 14 and aunt jackie was like in the upper echelon of those born her real name was bertha and i don't know how she got the nickname jackie but um it was Aunt jackie Aunt cookie and my mother who were uh you know very closest sisters and Aunt uh, Jackie often took care of us, or we were at Aunt Jackie's house, and we had to be quiet because Uncle Al worked the third shift, but not during Jackalane. And Aunt Jackie would exercise; she would use the rolling pin like over, you know, the the belly and the outside of the thighs, and she'd do the jumping jacks and you know point to toe when she was rolling it away.
2: I know you personally, and you are a very creative person. You don't seem to have uh, too much self-consciousness when it comes to being daring and and brave. And so when I picture you with this rolling pin, yeah, I totally picture you using it on yourself. And if not using it on yourself, when you're using it in the kitchen, I can totally imagine that you are picturing flesh as you are using this rolling pin. Am I right? Yeah,
3: I use it for a butt lift, like right under the line, the crack where the cheek of your butt meets the I bet that feels really good, right? Yeah, it does. It really does. And I use it um, in my attempts when I'm baking or having to flatten something out.
2: Now that I think about it, your Aunt Jackie sort of maybe invented the original foam roller but without the foam.
3: <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> She's onto something. Yeah.
2: Where would you like it to go after you're done here on planet earth?
3: Oh. I think the person who would appreciate it is um, my nephew's partner, Allie. I think Allie would appreciate it the most yeah part of me wants to give it to you <laughs> showing all this interest in it or brian's angels or something what's like. brian's angels oh it's a group in bristol that just collects things for people that are homeless clothing and furniture um yeah maybe i'll I'll put a note on it well deborah walsh thank you for talking with me thank you cayenne
2: When Amanda Delora was living in Washington, DC, walking a mile in heels with a KitchenAid mixer wasn't exactly in her life plan, but it kinda was.
4: I often tell people it's one of the hardest-fought objects that I own. (laughs) And that's not because anyone stood in my way of owning it, it's just because I didn't plan properly.
2: (laughs) You didn't plan properly, yeah.
4: Correct. So I I was about to turn 30, And I was living in Washington, DC, and I had this little studio apartment in the Chevy Chase neighborhood. And my apartment was about a mile walk to the nearest Metro station. This did not go into my um, planning when I was standing in a Target down on 14th Street and I saw this KitchenAid mixer and I impulsively decided to buy it that day. um, Not thinking I didn't have a car, not thinking I had to carry it to the metro station, get on the train, wrangle the large awkward box on the train, <laughs> and then get off the train, go up the escalators, and then walk a mile to my house.
2: In heels.
4: And yes, I was wearing heels, of course.
2: Now wait a minute, wait a minute. What what was going on in your life that you felt like, damn it, I'm buying it and I'm buying it now? Well, like what was happening?
4: you know, I think I was looking at turning 30 as most women do or did at one point, um, as sort of a landmark moment in my life. I was dating someone at the time, but it was not a healthy relationship. And I spent a lot of time alone and I never thought the relationship would end in marriage. And for some reason in my head, I thought that, you know, when you got married, you put a KitchenAid mixer on your registry because all of my friends who got married in their 20s had done that, right? <laughs> so in my mind, you know, I'm not getting married anytime soon, but I want this mixer because I bake a lot. And have you ever tried to make whipped cream without a motorized mixer?
2: I haven't, but I imagine it's impossible. Yeah, with I, a hand I wouldn't whisk. want to be put in mean, that it's, position.
4: <laughs> it's definitely a challenge. So... Since I loved to bake, I thought, you know, I I deserve a mixer and I'm turning 30 and I'm an independent woman. Gosh, darn it. So I'm going to buy myself this mixer. I'm not going to wait for someone to buy it for my wedding.
2: And so now when you see this beautiful machine and you're married to a wonderful person now, uh, you do not any longer live in a 200 square foot apartment. Uh, which helps in terms of the amount of space that this thing takes up. When you look at this KitchenAid mixer now, what do you think? What do you feel?
4: I'm reminded of my attitude that I'll just get it done. So it's kind of funny. I was thinking about this before talking to you. And there have been many times in my life where I didn't have the proper resources or tools to do something and I was like, that doesn't, that's not going to stop me. I'm just going to do it. You know, I need to be in New Haven at 10 o'clock and I don't have a car. <laughs> I'll get there. I'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, those types of things don't daunt me. Um, and I think I'm kind of proud of that. I think the, the stick-to-itiveness and the nature of getting things done, I, you know, I get that from my father and also a lot of other people in my life who've inspired me. So I think that's what it reminds me of. I think it's just one of those quirky things that we do in our lives that kind of sticks with us. I mean, it's just a kitchen appliance. It's not, you know, it really isn't that important of an object, but I've just put this importance on it because of how, how I obtained it. And um, I don't know, I'm kind of proud of that in a weird, silly way.
2: (laughs) Well, the undaunted Amanda Delora, thank you for talking with me.
4: My pleasure. (laughs)
2: If you've ever been to Union Square in New York City between 1993 and the mid-2000s, you probably heard the voice of Joe Ades. He became famous, featured in Vanity Fair even, for his charming and very successful business selling vegetable peelers for five bucks a pop. He died in 2009 at 75 years old as a very wealthy man. Here is a loving reflection from one of his customers, Josh Lewis from New York, New York.
11: Well, I mean, I actually have it right here, which I know works great for radio. And, you know, I can't tell you how long I've had it because I don't know. Um, It might be 20 years or more. By those standards, it's probably the best $5 I've ever spent.
2: Now, what do you remember about seeing him?
11: What I I mean, I can remember was Union Square. That was his spot. It's very possible I was heading home. Um, probably on a weekend afternoonish.
2: It was a sunny day with a few clouds, maybe a low sixties. I actually <laughs> remember
11: it being kind of gray. It was a real New York story. There I was walking with uh, David Johansen and John Lurie and uh, Peter Zaremba from the Flesh Tones and Andy Warhol. Yeah, right, of course. And you know, just it was just an you know just an average weekend in New York as
2: state. one does. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
11: exactly. I just remember walking through. I guess it's the Green Market there, the you know the weekend market. And there was a guy sitting there, you know, basically on the curb, you know, he's like sitting very low to the ground and he's spieling, you know, he's talking up a storm.
7: And if you buy four for 20 and a lot too, you get one free. I know you don't need five peelers, but they're wonderful gifts. You give them the 70 for a gift, they're gonna think of you. Every time they send foot in the kitchen. Okay. How many? When you peel a potato, it doesn't matter whether you're right-handed, left-handed, like a politician underhanded. All you take off that potato, you come to an eye, you scoop it out. that's the scoop. You'll turn the whole potato into french fries in no time. You let those slices go into hot oil and watch them go brown, you're gonna love the potato chips. How long will it take to do that with a knife? That was a big potato. Now my machine is so gentle, You'll peel asparagus oh, without breaking the tip.
11: And I know now you've seen the uh, video. He's got a very, very appealing accent. The accent helps. Right. And he also had that Tupperware, you know, this almost like little makeshift table with a bunch of vegetables. As he was talking, he's basically telling you, I mean, it was like a real life experience with a, it slices, it dices, it makes French fries. And he's like, and you could do this with your carrots and you could do that with your potatoes. And. It was entertainment and, you know, I just watched him for a bit and I thought, yeah, I have a peeler at home, but it it is kind of the, the cruddy one that he's comparing his to <laughs> and it's $5 and hey, I've got a $5 bill in my pocket or if I have a 10, he can easily make change. And so I just went up, gave him a five, got the peeler and I think I watched him for a little bit after that and then I went home. And like, look, I've got a peeler, you know, and like, but we have those. But this one's really cool.
2: Because of the guy who was selling them. Now, you were walking down the street and not necessarily in the market for a peeler, probably not even thinking about a peeler. And then you see this, this old guy with an accent and a suit crouching down. Did you know when you got that peeler? I know it was over 20 years ago, but did you know that he was something special?
11: I had no idea. He was obviously very good at what he did. And I mean, I also had no idea that the suit he was wearing and was that expensive.
2: Um, yeah. Dude would go to restaurants. I mean, of course I read up on this guy. He would go to restaurants and order champagne, Veuve Clicquot. Like he, he always had a table at the best restaurant. I mean, this, he, he was good at his job, $5 at a time.
11: Exactly. And, and it was entertainment. And I was also getting a peeler that I hoped would work and it is good, but I use it every time I peel vegetables and we still have other peelers and I do think about it, about them. And it seemed like a, an old school moment, if you will. It, it does kind of bring me joy, you know, every time I see it. So
2: it sparks joy.
11: It sparked. There it is. It sparks joy.
2: What do you hope happens to this peeler after you die? Hmm.
11: That's a good question. I mean, I actually, I probably hold on to things a little bit too much, but this one, it takes up very, very little space and it's very, very useful. And I suspect it's always going to be useful. So at some point I will be telling the story of it to somebody who will hopefully outlast me and hopefully they'll use it. And, you know, they won't necessarily have my story about it, but they'll have, a story about it, maybe a connection to it. And hopefully they will do more of the fancy things with it that he was demonstrating than than I was. But but yeah, that's, that's what I would hope for it.
2: Well, Josh Lewis, thanks for talking
6: with me. My pleasure. After the break. To me, we are the double pot. And now I feel that we're simmering and now we're boiling over. Just to have them to look at, it's like I'm able to touch my mom. It's
0: actually the best way to cook frijoles Negro. The trick is going to
9: be the pressure cooker. Oh, my mom gave me a knife. We never use it, but we have it.
2: I'm Kai wolf Can you believe we have more stories about kitchen stuff? Yeah, you can, because this is audacious. Be right back.
0: You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast in absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the accountability project.
11: If you've never donated to this station before, that's okay. Public radio is available to everyone for free. But we do rely on listener support from those who are able to give. So join the community of supporters for public media giving days. And thanks. Give now
0: at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious.
2: I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're hearing stories about kitchen utensils and appliances that mean something that have a whole background that, in the middle of meaningless mashers or average air fryers, makes them stand out and get featured on public radio shows. Well, this public radio show. Corrine Blake from Hartford, Connecticut, told me about her mother and the dish she's famous for.
8: My mother has, you know, her health has deteriorated. And so my mother used to bake the best bami's and the best corn pudding in our area. Everybody else talks about the bammies that she makes. And she normally does these bammies that you dry. It's like bread. It's made from cassava. And you can have them, have it in your soup, you know, steam it, put some hot water on it, a little butter, and you're ready to go. And so, since she's not able to do any of those anymore, I decided to be brave enough to take the utensils that she uses for those, So I have the sieve, the grater, and the baking iron. I have not yet embarked on the project of making Bami myself.
2: Now, will you tell me what it feels like when you put your hands on these items to make this very special meal? What does it feel like for you to do
8: that? Well, let me tell you, just to have them to look at, it's like I'm able to touch my mom. It's like I can feel her presence. This is what the grater looks like. Oof, that looks old and loved and well used. And and the the, the baking iron is one of those tools. And the sieve. I'm gonna take pictures of those because those are at home and send them to you because you. I'm sure you've never seen them before. The only person who can tell you that they've seen those are probably people who are Jamaicans.
2: So after you die. What do you want to see happen with these items?
8: Miss, my girls are not going to be making any bammies. <laughs> you know, this generation, maybe they will share them and each one keep one of the items because it's from my mother. But it won't be like for my mother's sake, I'm going to be making bammies too. Uh uh-uh. uh. They'll be like, where, where can I go buy some of that?
2: Well, Kareen Blake, thank you for talking with me.
8: Peace, peace, and love, and more love.
2: If you live in West Hartford, Connecticut, and you've ever gotten your knife sharpened, you've probably been to Cook Shop Plus on LaSalle Road. And if you've been to Cook Shop Plus on LaSalle Road, you've definitely seen and heard the voice of James Hines, who co-owns the place. I asked him to figure out what piece of all of his kitchen items at home he'd like to talk about.
9: Probably one of the biggest pieces my wife and I were trying to discuss the one piece was we have a LaCrucet, cast iron enamel brazier it was actually my mother my mother-in-law's first piece when they got married so they're originally from ireland so she's trucked it from ireland all the way to australia multiple places around australia we've moved three or four different cities across the world and still sitting in the kitchen so it's one of those pieces where you just don't have the heart we've kind of grown out of it a little bit but we kind of don't have the heart to donate it or give it away or it just kind of sits in the cupboard and we, we pull it out for, for reasons Yes, let's just use it. We haven't used it for a while. We feel guilty when we haven't. We haven't used like we're betraying some sort of historical trust. And that's probably that's probably the theme of what we hear most in the in the store. It's stuff that um, people have still had. You know, they're buying they're buying replacement versions of um, you know things like cookware, and knives are the major things. Um, but they kind of go, "Oh, my mom gave me a knife. We never use it, but but we have it." So it, thats kind of the theme, and I, whenever I think of whenever I hear that kind of story, story, I think, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about.
2: So, do you think this is going to be like passed down as not as a pot, but basically as an albatross around your children's necks and their children's necks?
9: And it has to be, yeah. And my—I'm sure my daughter will go, Dad, what am I going to do with this? And you kind of—it doesn't matter you put it into a cupboard. That's the tradition. (laughs) (laughs) The things we do, you know,
2: when I think about all the knives that come into your shop, I imagine you, you do get a lot of stories, even if it's not the full story, it's not a beginning, middle and end story, but you, you probably hear a lot of stories about knives. Yeah.
9: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, we do thousands of sharpenings a year and on the on the facings, it has no story, but it, I think it's lovely how people just can't help themselves. And you know, I I I'm a knife guy as well, so I mean, it's always interesting to see what the origins. You know, I know where they were made. You know, they were made in Germany. They were made in Japan. Um, that's not the interesting part. It's the origins of and it's the missing handle parts and the the, the scratches on the top. And the, yeah, it's like I'm looking over them, and you can, you can people can see me looking at them and going, "Oh, that's where my son dropped it." Or that's where we tried to pry some ice apart on New Z, You know like I said, thousands of knives every year. And, you know, it's rare that we don't get some sort of comment or story backing them up when they drop them off. Cause it's, it's like dropping kids off to a daycare center, I think for a lot of people.
2: <laughs> so you can have these things that'll last forever, whether you use them or not, like the Lake Rose, or whether exactly. you want to use them all the time, like those knives.
9: Yeah, it's really, it, it is lovely. I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the best things about, I mean, being such a specialty retailer for us, it's, and being in this category, it, it's really nice. It's, you know, people come in and, and they want to tell you what they're cooking, what they're baking and, and what they're using. I mean, people, will they'll buy a new springform pan and then tell me about the one they've had for 30 years. Oh. And then, you know, they're buying one, they're going, it's not as good as the one I had, you know, that I still have in my cupboard. I okay, go, yep, but we don't want to use that one anymore because it might break. So oh. I'll, I'll buy a new one. It, it just shows that what they're doing in the kitchen means something to them. It's not just a matter of, you know, nutrition.
2: Well, James Hines, co owner of Cookshop Plus in West Hartford on LaSalle. Thank you so much for talking with me.
9: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
2: Lois Lee is the director of the Chinese American Planning Council in Flushing, New York. And she has this double boiler that ended up in a museum. But let's go back to the beginning.
6: Whenever I went to visit my mom, she would make this soup. We used to all call it wicked soup because it tastes nasty. But then <laughs> I, got, I got used to the, the taste. So, what it is, it's um, a steamer sort of. The bottom of the pot, you put the water in it, and it boils. But then the second layer is the uh, uh, an insert almost, so it sits right on top. And then she would put chicken and all these Chinese herbs. And it's supposed to be very good for women, you know, when we are menstruating or you have your period, you know, that's like that kind of stuff. But I really got used to that pot, you know, of that pot of soup. And whenever I come, I know she will say, "Drink your soup." But then when I realized that the story, when I put it into the museum, it had more of a story, you know, it's sort of how uh, culture, you know, when uh, they had to learn how she came to the United States when she was only 16 years old, when she was, she got married at 16. My father um, uh, came first. So when he came, they, uh, it was World War II, It's in the 1940s. So they drafted everyone, I guess when they got off the boat, somehow they found him. And so then uh, he became an airplane, um, I guess a mechanic for the army. Then when the war was over, he went back to China and, and, and met my mom and she became the war bride. They allowed them to bring the bride back home. So that's what we call a war brides. So she comes and, and she, she doesn't know anything. She's a farm girl. And also she didn't know how to cook at all. And my father uh, was a very good cook, worked in the Chinese restaurant when he got his job. And um, she would, we have to, if he made chicken in the morning, then at night, we would still be looking at this chicken that was cooked because she didn't know how to cut the chicken. Then my father would have to teach her. Now she can cook and, and make double uh, pot soup. So for this pot, for her to be simmering and then finally come to this delicious soup and really uh, found her place in America. They both my parents left China because it was at that time, 1949, it was also during the communist takeover. So they knew that this was going to happen and they all had to flee. No one wanted to live. They knew that communism would be repressive and, and uh, oppressive. And so they, they really, they fled to America. So this is their home. Now, I want to bring it back to modern times now. you know, uh, I, I don't see much changes over the years when you look at Asian American history, we had their uh, they built the railroad, but no recognition of that. After they they really suffered, and then the exclusion acts to be uh, an immigrant group that is excluded from entering our country when we have contributed so much, and then um, then the internment of the Japanese Americans. So you think, well, this is all part of uh, Asian American history. It's not happening now. And what happens now? Anti-Asian hate. It's starting all over again. So here. Uh, I feel that we're like the double pot. You know, you're not fully American because people will look at you because you don't look. Uh, uh, I have to say, white. <laughs> if You don't look white, then then you're you're hyphenated. Did I hyphenate myself? No, I always thought of myself as American. I'm born in the United States, you know, but now I'm Asian American, but never fully accepted as American, and then never fully accepted as Chinese. Um, so it, it's it's to me, we are the double pot, not fully, you know, we're marginalized. You know, we're not fully American, not fully Chinese. And um, it's it's been an identity crisis. And now instead of just simmering, you know, this is not the multi-pot that they want the United States to be, you know, and it's not a stew. It's not everybody together. And now I feel that we're simmering and now we're boiling over. We, want, we have a voice and we want to use it.
2: I'm so grateful, Lois Lee. For your story and your work and your time, thank you so much for telling me that story. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, bye bye. Susan Jacobson of Tyler, Minnesota, has this nifty gadget in her kitchen. It's it's called a roll a roll a roller
10: pulsa press.
2: Roller pulsa press.
10: Yes, and um, roller pulsa is a Danish rolled meat sausage. And it can be made from lamb or veal or beef or pork. And my friends and I make it with lamb breast. So you get a lamb breast, you remove all the the skin and the silver.
2: This is the part where Susan lovingly walks me through the process of making Rolla Pulsa, which can take almost as much time to explain it as it takes to make it. Actually, that's not true. It can take up to a week to make this dish. A week. A crude way to explain the process is that this carefully trimmed meat gets spiced and rolled up and wrapped in the skin that used to be on the meat. And then it's all wrapped up nice and snug with a cotton string. And then it gets brined for a couple days. And then it gets poached for a couple hours. And then this whole beautiful thing goes into a box the Rolla Pulsa Press. And Susan's is particularly cool because it's aluminum, not wood, which is more common. And the meat stays pressed for at least a full day in the fridge until you can finally slice it up and enjoy the most time-consuming sandwich you've ever had. Anyway, back to Susan.
10: And so this is really cutting edge, early 20th century kitchenware. And it works like, a. I mean, it's a wonderful, it really works, it is so functional. And the roller posta itself is delicious. It's not made as often now because it's so time consuming. People just don't put that much time into it, but it's a labor of love. So where do you keep this press? I keep it in my storage room because it's big. It takes up a lot of room and I don't show it off to people unless they understand what roller is and how to make it. And then they ooh and ah because it's so special.
2: What do you think is going to become of it after you're gone?
10: I will pass it on to one of my nieces um, because I have several nieces who love to cook and they're very good cooks and they carry on a lot of the uh, Nordic food traditions. But this we will keep the world Postal Press in the family. And I trust that it will be passed down from generation to generation because it is we all recognize it's special. I spent my whole working career in an art museum as an educator so I am very attached to objects and unapologetic about it I believe objects bring great joy and life and values and culture are transmitted through objects and I would hate to see that lost tools like the rollable press shouldn't sit in a museum unused they should be used That's what they were meant for. And as an aluminum tool, that will last forever. I mean, this tool will last for hundreds of years. There's nothing. It's indestructible. And so we just have to keep teaching the recipes of how to use it to keep this going. And it's when you eat food that you had as a child, it brings back, for me anyway, these feelings of being loved being part of a community attachment to other people and those are things worth saving so yes i love my press i think it's i it's very 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 special to me
2: susan jacobson
10: and that's jacobson with
2: an s-e-n yes uh thank you so much for talking with me thank you raquel v reyes of miami florida is a big fan of books She's the author of the Caribbean Kitchen Mystery Series, and she's got a personal story that starts with this pressure cooker she inherited from her stepmother, Elena.
0: I was terrified of it. I mean, it has that little top that is like a bell, and you know, like the cartoon where like the steam and stuff is coming out of the bell, and uh, it was that. It's almost like it's angry, right? Completely. But anyway, once once you get over that fear, it's really fine. And it's actually the best way to cook frijoles negro. That is the only way they're going to come out tender. End of story. Forget it. You could soak those beans for three, four, cinco días. It doesn't matter. The trick is going to be the pressure cooker. So I I watched her do this and I learned how to do it. And then she gives me my own pressure cooker. Great. And then she gives me the classic book book for Cuban cooking. Okay. It's called Cocina al Minuto. Okay. Everyone in a Cuban family has this book. So I get it. And then um, I'm right beside her. I've got a little piece of paper. I'm writing down all these secrets to her uh, Friolas Negros. Right. And, and great. I've got it down. So then we move into a house and the cabinets above in the kitchen, there's like a little space above it, right? And um, I put up some pictures and some plates and some things I didn't use much. And then I was like, oh, well, why don't I put my cookbooks up there? Because like I didn't have another place for it. It's kind of like a little galley kitchen. There's not a lot of room, right? So I put up my books up there. No problem. I think I go in like a year or so. For some reason, I want to get down. And I reach for it. And it shifts and it falls into this little space that I didn't know existed. So, like when they built these things, there's this itty bitty space between the wall and where the (sighs) cabinet started that I guess didn't get filled, right? So, all my little secret steps (sighs) for cooking the frijoles negro is in a piece of paper inside of Cocino al Minuto. (sighs) So, it has fallen down there. And the only way to get it out is to destroy the whole cabinets. Like we've tried everything. We're like, could we go in through the side? (laughs) Could we go underneath it? It's in there, it's done, it's there. So it's a lost recipe that's not lost because I know exactly where it is. I just can't get to it until we redo this kitchen, which I don't even think that's ever gonna happen. But anyway, I can recreate the Negro. It's not that it's just the, like, you know, I know the steps I've done it enough. You know, I, I was with her when she made it, you know, I can do all of that, but, you know, she's since she's passed away. And so there's such a sentimental connection to that blue book and, you know, that recipe that I wrote when I was standing right beside her. So it's lost, but not lost. You know, like I even look up and I know that space and I'm like, there it is that she's like, so she's like always with me in the kitchen, almost, even though I can't physically put my hands on that book. So that was like a long convoluted way to talk to you about my pressure cooker. And let me tell you, I only use my pressure cooker for frijoles negros.
2: (laughs) I thought this was going to be a story about a slow cooker, but no, it's a story about a piece of paper and someone you love a
0: lot. I'm sorry for your loss, what was she like? She was incredible. She was a riot. Um, I didn't get to know her until I was in my later teen years. And yeah, I just really miss her. She would have been really proud of me. She would have been really proud of my writing career and what I've done with it. And yeah, I miss her a lot.
2: Well, Raquel V. Reyes, thank you so much for telling me that story.
0: Oh, this was great. I had so much fun. I appreciate
2: it. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our fearless interns, Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks this week to Catherine Lloyd of the Tenement Museum in New York, New York. We found Lois with the double boiler pot and Susan with the roller of Pulse Press through them. They feature the people behind objects that tell personal stories of American immigration and migration. Check them out at yourstory.tenement.org. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like what food item the illustrator for the Great British Bake Off has never drawn. And you can come dumpster diving with me at an Aldi. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, Or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org.